Well, good morning, everybody. Happy, happy Saturday, and it is happy birthday, Mr. Ricard Wagner. It is his 208th birthday today, and because of that, we are commemorating this show to do an astrology session about him and his chart, also his music, and we're going to hear some of his music on the way through this. We've got some really good selections for you. Believe me, um, there was a lot we could have chosen because it's all brilliant. But uh, we picked a, a highlights from Tristan and Isolde, um, the Valkyrie, and I think we have Tannhauser too. So uh, we have some of his biggest, biggest operas we're going to pick through. So it's going to be a very interesting time. And we are doing him today for the Celebrity of the Week, as we usually do. And, of course, my guest is Mr. Michelangelo. He is from New York City. He is a musician, and he is also an astrologer. Very much kind of like me, but way more advanced than I am because he has studied so much, and he's done a lot of, a lot of papers on various people astrologically and, and also psychologically. So it's really going to be an interesting show today because Richard Wagner is really quite a guy. I mean, there was, there's a lot of things I have to say about him maybe as a prelude, but I want to say one thing, and, and this is not to just to showcase this one thing about him and to just leave it. He was an anti, he was uh, anti-Semite. So um, unfortunately, he was prejudiced against Jews, and that it's gone down in history as a very strong thing in his chart or in his life. But what we want to look at today is his music and, and how he and how he did it. I mean, it's extraordinary, and we... There's just so much to talk about. He wrote mostly operas, and he wrote the big one, The Ring Das Nibelungen. I can't even say that. I should say that right. The Ring Das Nibelungen. Thank you very much. That's four operas. That's 15 hours of music, and it's really an extraordinary piece. I know that um, I have seen The Ring every time it's been performed in Seattle for the past, I don't know how many years. So I've seen it at least four or five times, and it's really an extraordinary piece of work. So... Anyway, we're going to get on with this this morning. We're going to be talking about him and his psychologically his psychological side, his musical side, his writing side, everything like that. So please stay tuned to listen about him because we don't really know what we're going to say, okay? But we kind of know that we have a general idea of him. And so we're going to just go back and forth and talk about his ideas and talk about, you know, and also play some of his music, too. So stay tuned. Okay? Okay. We will be right back here with the Jupiter Rising Show right here on KKNW Alternative Talk Radio. Alternative Talk 1150. We're on your radio at 1150 AM. We're on your HD radio at 98.9 Channel 3. So many ways to listen. We're on the web at 1150kknw.com. Streaming live audio and video as well as MP3 archives of many of our shows. So many ways to listen. And now, we're on your smartphone or tablet. Download our free app in the Apple App Store or Google Play and take Alternative Talk 1150 anywhere you go. So many ways to listen. Alternative Talk 1150, local talk for the body, mind, and soul. I was just thinking, that's very heroic music, extremely heroic. And hi, Michelangelo. Hi. How are you? I love the smell of napalm in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Oh, that was Apocalypse Now, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, yeah. That, that was such appropriate music for that time in the movie. Yeah. yeah, and I was just thinking it was very heroic, what he wrote. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And there's Mars right on the midheaven, the hero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, archetypally, yeah, really. Yeah, Wagner was certainly obsessed with, I think, the idea of, of the hero. I mean, the hero Siegfried certainly plays a pivotal role in, in, um, <clears throat> in the ring cycle. Right. And I admire you for your... Uh, What's the word I would use? Sheer perseverance that you've been able to sit through the ring all those times. <laughs> I, I've certainly studied it a great deal, but I've never sat through a performance. I think I did attend a performance of Rheingold. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah, wonderful yeah. opera. Yeah, which yeah. is quite lovely. Yeah, and yeah. well, a lot of it was because uh, my dad was in the Seattle Opera Chorus at that time, and they performed the ring cycle every summer for I don't yeah, know how many yeah. years. And I was, of course, I had tickets to go so my mom said you're yeah. coming with me i went okay so it was way before i really started to really love music i would love it probably way more now but i loved it then you yeah. know and especially go to damarung the last one in the series but um yeah it, we were right in the front row too it was awesome it was really oh, cool wow. and of incredible. course you know who else we saw in the ring cycle was noel till oh no sure yes, he played voton you know, the king of the oh. gods, and he was six foot ten at that time, I think, before he shrank. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he, I met him, I met him in Denver many years ago, and we, we chatted about Yeah, him. he was, he's yeah. the, he was the perfect Votan. He really was. Yeah. Yeah, larger yeah. than life, you know. Oh, very much so. And, you know, isn't that interesting? Larger than life is what I would describe R Ricardo Wagner as, larger than life. Yeah, well, you know, the thing that struck me, I mean, there's so many, so much we could say about him. And you, in our pre previous discussion, we talked about the fact that he's, you know, a double Gemini with, a, you know, with a moon and Aquarius. But, you know, the thing that's, what that I saw, which I, I didn't at first, was this idea that he has a bucket chart with Jupiter as the handle. Okay, yes. And, and yes. to me, that says, I mean, as much as Mars at the midheaven, and of course, Mars opposes Jupiter right. very closely, you know, it's it's that jupiter that to me swings the, the whole chart you know, yes it, it kind of does doesn't it and yeah, so much about it even though it's in the fourth house you know it's sort of and it's exactly you know, opposite his mars that really yeah. amplifies the the heroic thing in his yeah, life yeah totally and, amplifies you know just it. everything about him you know his uh i mean i was i mean dare we say it you know certainly taken to certain extremes a certain kind of megalomania that i think only someone with this kind of uh creative uh impetus you know would be justified in in owning you know, yes because, that's right I mean, here's yes. a man who created some of the most gigantic forms yes of of any artist of, in any genre you know yes it, he would be accused of, of writing large music yeah, yeah he would yeah. because it just seemed bigger than you know at yeah. bigger if he made it this big it would be that much bigger you know yeah than everybody yeah. else would do it so, yeah, um, and just the capacity to conceive, you know, these types of things, you know, I think it's, I know. Is, is very much the province of people with a lot of air. In, I know. In their charts, you it's, know. it's, um, I, I keep thinking back to when he composed the ring cycle. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but what the heck? That's all right. There isn't really any order that we're doing this in. We're just kind of taking it as it comes. But, um, yeah. the, um, ring cycle took him 26 years to write. Yeah, you know, from the beginning of writing the first libretto all the way up to the first performance of it, you know. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, that's sort of a Saturn thing, but not really. But I looked to see if there was Saturn stuff going on, and there really wasn't. But um, 
it it was obviously and also that he took a side turn off of that in the middle of it and wrote Tristan and Isolde. Right. You know, and I thought it was I kind know. of maybe that's what he needed to do to write the ring cycle. Well, Is, yeah, I mean it could just be that being the Gemini, he had to take a break from his sort of, uh, what I call it, his epic voice and focus on something that, even though to a certain extent it does also uh, stem from the realm of, of myth, it is the more personal. Uh, yeah, right. That's the love stuff. Journey. Yeah, the love yeah. stuff. Um, and of course, with someone with Venus, really, uh, well, Venus isn't quite in the heart of the sun, but it's certainly, you know, in close proximity to the sun. I think yeah, it's right at the last degree, too. It's the last yeah. degree, 29 Taurus. Yeah. You know, and it's in its own sign. So that, that that's significant because that's going to be a, a major point in his life that he's looking at. But um, also, you know, the other thing I was thinking about when I looked at, first looked at his chart was all these planets are right around the cardinal points in his chart. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure if that means anything. Is the first thing I noticed. You know, yeah. you have Venus and Sun right on the ascendant. And then Jupiter yeah. right on the fourth, and then you have Uranus on the other side of the seventh in the sixth house, and then we have Mars south node and the moon in the tenth house, very close to the tenth house. So yeah, what uh, are the the angles are the portals of manifestation. Exactly. Right? This is, you know, know, this is a sense of someone that, if he had big ideas, he was capable of bringing them in. And and the, and the interesting thing, of course, is. The man was always in debt. He was always running from the law. He right. was always being pursued by creditors <laughs> yeah. until maybe late in life. And uh, But yet he was able to to bring these gigantic conceptions into material form. Right? That's, that's right. That's extraordinary. Yeah, and I think that having those planets in those particular spots helped him because he couldn't yeah. just sit there on his laurels and just think, oh, I'm very great at this, you know. Yeah. You no. know, and, and maybe someday somebody will hear me. No, yeah. no, no. No, he said he had to do something with it. Yeah, which he did, obviously. Well, as a man of the theater, you know, the theater only exists in in actual performance. I mean, you can write plays till the cow comes home, you can write operas, but if they're not never produced, yeah. you know, then they remain just you know exercises in uh, abstract creativity, for want of a better term. And uh, I mean, not only did he conceive these gigantic ideas, but then he could actually put together and assembled and erected a, a place, a place of, that has become a place of pilgrimage for all his acolytes and followers down through the decades, Yes, uh, where he could produce these objects. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, he really, his life just kind of flowed in the direction where it needed to go. And when he yeah. needed a place, somebody built it. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Ludwig II basically made it happen for him. You know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the thing about money, though, which is interesting to me, um, let's see what it says here. Venus, an aspect to Saturn, does it? Well, sort of widely trines it, but it's not really connected to Saturn because if, you know, he has trouble with finances all his life, something's going on yeah. there. So, yeah. Well, I always see, I always see Saturn retrograde as, as um, representing a person who, even if they've got a lot of uh, personal resources feels like they don't yeah uh but i also just out of idle curiosity i thought well this reminds me very much of frank lloyd wright and so i looked and both of them had saturn retrograde and and Wright, just like wagner was always you know begging borrowing and stealing money from people basically to to put his to you know to create his wonderful architectural 
designs. And then the same, same problem, always problems with creditors, always moving from state to state yep. to escape them. So yep, it's, it right. seems to me that Saturn retrograde may have something to do with that. Probably well. did. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. We need to take a really quick break. And when we get back, sure. we're going to be talking some more about Mr. Wagner. And we have a lot more stuff to talk about. I just can see the doors are just opening wide here for different possibilities to talk about. So anyway, okay. So this is the Jupiter Rising show right here on KKNW Alternative Talk Radio. <laughs> This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Ananda Institute of Living Yoga, we cover the world of animals. This week, May 23rd, it's a bonus edition of Positive Talk with Kevin McDonald on Animal World. Kevin will bring his usual happy attitude along with medium, animal communicator, and personal awareness coach, Natasha Venter. They'll have lots of times for your calls. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, talk radio for the body, mind, and soul. Oh my gosh, I could listen to that whole thing. It's an extraordinary piece. It's the Liebestote. It's one of the final movements of Tristan and Isolde, and that was Kirsten Flagstad singing that. Ah, you did go up. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know who that was? <laughs> no, I thought it was Flagstad. I yeah. thought it was Flagstad. Yes, I found it on on YouTube. Wow, what a voice. Wow, just total full emotion, total. Yeah, Yeah. beautiful singer she was. And, of course, that particular uh, movement from that is so extraordinary. I can't even talk about it without crying, okay? So (laughs) it just hits a gut so deeply in me when I hear that. So, excuse me, I have to put that aside. So um, That's all right, baby. Huh? That shows us the genius of the man. Uh, well, the first time I heard it was by Jesse Norman. And I yeah, just, yeah. it was just amazing. Just amazing. So, yeah. 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 So, anyway, um, okay. So let me get my head back on straight here. Um, it, that shows the contrast of what a Wagner can do from the first movement to the second movement. I mean, the sensitivity in that. And of course, this piece, Liebestot, which is love death, basically. And, and that's what it translates into. So through love, you will often find that you have to die for it type of thing. And that's kind of the kind of the, the main theme in Tristan and Isolde, don't you think? Oh, most assuredly. I mean, and I think it really is the um, obsession, if you will, of yeah. the entire romantic movement in music. It's Eros and Thanatos, you know. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Finding the, the balance between the two. And of course, the notion that you, in a sense, you can't really achieve perfect love no. until you, you, you achieve can't just death. quite I mean, get there. It's yeah, like one yeah. step away and then it falls away. Yeah. yeah. And so, so that's uh, really quite extraordinary. And, uh, and I, I, we do see that, I think, as a theme in many romantic compositions, operas, right. uh, in, in, in various ways. You know, it yes. isn't always, uh, how should we put it? I mean, Wagner really, it's a sense, this is the apotheosis of that idea, but sometimes it's, uh, a, even with Puccini, I think with his peculiar obsessions, we have the same idea that yeah. love can't really be achieved in life, but can only That's be right. accomplished through the death of one death. of the partners. Right. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily a healthy attitude, no, but, but, it, not, but it is not what it is. <laughs> normal terms, no, but it's sort of something to achieve, you know, to, yeah. to uh, 
to go for the, the highest possible elevation of love on the highest level. And I'm looking at his Pluto and Pisces here going, oh, well, that's part of it, too, you know. Yeah, and, and square Neptune. So and got sort square of double Neptune. Neptune, yes, that, too. Double yeah. Neptune, Pluto here, which was certainly, to me, is love, death. You know, yeah, and, and, you know, it's interesting because we've had the t- Neptune-Pluto square happening in our lives for the past, I don't know how many years. This is, no. means a lot more, <laughs> I swear. It seems yeah. as though the manifestation of the Neptune-Pluto came more in the Romantic era, which was right around then, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it, it played out very deeply, you know, and yeah. it showed up in the work. But, you know, like, I don't know if it has did this last one didn't do it that much, do you think? I'm sorry, which... Uh, this, you know, the, the Neptune-Pluto, I think, was sextile. Oh, no, it, I don't think we had No, that. we didn't have it, really. No, the square no. created much more tension, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah so I think so. That would make sense to me, so... Yeah, and we really, I think, from a musical perspective, you know, the romantic movement, particularly, I think, with opera, begins with uh, Karl Maria von Weber and his opera, Der Fleischens. Right, that's the, right. It was mentioned in stuff I was reading that yeah, Wagner really and, loved um, his music. Yeah, yes. and Wagner took early inspiration from from Freischutz. Uh, right. So that, and uh, but Freischutz is really more of a even though there is a love story within it, it really is a much more of a conventional piece. In okay. That it's, uh, although there are dark forces that the, the hero Mox does have to contend with. That's probably what Wagner was was attracted to was the darker. Forces. Oh yeah, most assuredly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's with his music, it seems like there's equal dark and equal light. You know, it just seems like it's kind of right down the middle, you know, and oh, yeah. we're drawn to the, don't you think, kind of? Almost um, assuredly, yeah. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of dark, you know, and you can hear it a lot, but it's not something that um, when I heard, I wasn't afraid to listen to it. I thought it was just intensely wonderful, you know, yeah. but then I have a chart that would like that anyway. But uh, but the um, the other side of it is the um, the lightness of, of romance sometimes this is just mm-hmm. pulling in the bottom to it you know and yeah. so i have a venus pluto opposition i really can't help that okay so <laughs> <laughs> I well, really again, i can't. think i would i think i would lay a lot of the um responsibility for that once again on that on that jupiter it's like this is a man of extremes yes right he you know as it said he creates these gigantic forms and then these epic stories i mean you know what is the what is the ring cycle it's really right Right. The the plumbing to the most extraordinary depths of, of the Teutonic mythos, you know, um, yeah. in a way that it, I think one would be hard pressed to, to find a, an equivalent. Although I'm sure people did try afterwards to do the same kind of thing with Greek and Roman myth. Oh, yeah. You know, um, but so that is very much a Jupiterian idea. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the way is, you know, the Jupiter and Leo, it has to be shown in front of people. You know, it has to be on stage somehow. To yeah. Retweet. And the other thing that strikes me as relevant to that, are we, are we still uh, going here, is this idea of the sun and the 12th. You know, this is the classic sign of the orphan. Okay. And uh, this was a man who thought that the man that he was living with as a child was his father, but his father had yes, actually died yes, much yes. earlier. Yeah. So I just wonder if on some subconscious level he wasn't trying to find that, the sense of the father archetype in his life through his oh, art. For sure, with the Saturn being you know. retrograde. I mean, yeah. one of the things yeah. that Noel Till talked about with the Saturn retrograde phenomenon is 
what's missing, basically, when you have a Saturn retrograde. There's some part mm-hmm. of the father archetype that's missing, and one of them can be the father's actually missing, you know, yeah, from yeah. growing up. And he has, gets a father replacement through this man that was picked by his, um, his mother, you know, after his, mother, his father yeah. died. Right. And, and who was certainly a source of great inspiration and made him want to be a playwright and got his first exposure to the stage yeah. through Geyer, who was his father. I mean, he didn't even have his own re- name until his first That's Saturday right. Position. He took the ma- name of the, the father replacement. Yeah, yeah he did. So, so, so I think there's more than a little bit of, of psychology. That's true. Yeah. So. To tinge to that. And of course, in that context, I can't help but think of Wotan in Die Valkyrie, you know, that extraordinary body that is great. Right. Father archetype from Teutonic. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, and yeah. all through his music, he has these amazing father arch. like you just said, like Wotan yeah. and, you know, Siegfried to a lesser degree and all that, you know, very strong male figures, you yeah. know, that uh, probably that's what he needed in his life and probably didn't get yeah. it. Yeah. Interesting enough, very much like his contemporary Verdi, uh, who also was very concerned with the father-daughter relationship. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, and that kind of also comes down to his relationships, which were interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I, I haven't got them all straight in my head. I don't honest. either. Um, I mean, I'm yeah. kind of like, when was he, who was he with, when, and how old were they, and what? Um, I mean, he even was... he. he King Ludwig, which was kind of interesting. He was going yeah, along yeah. for a long time, and he was kind of a bit poor ends and couldn't quite make ends meet. Then he meets King Ludwig, and look, he basically is homosexual, and he's yeah. going to finance everything he does, and he does everything. He he was not above <laughs> saying, oh, I'll do it for you, and if you want that with me, okay, we can do that. And he just kind of pacified him along the way. Yeah, yeah, he strung him along, sure. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think that's the chicanery, you know, without wanting to offend any Geminis in the audience, but that, that we often find with that, that dual nature of Gemini. You know, yes, and, uh, that's very true. The, the, the end justifies the means. You know, yes, in this case. kind of that way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That and, did uh, crack me up when I read that, and I said, you know, but in the end, he pulled his financing away from him, too, because I think he realized that he wasn't going to put out. Yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, I just find it interesting. Um, and he was very, obs- very obsessed. His relationships with women were really yeah. complex, you know. And Well, were- I mean, it is the, you know, it is the, uh, what did Goethe say? Die ewig weibliche sieht uns hinan, right? The eternal feminine draws its ever. Oh, uh, right, I think right. That's, yeah, there's always something the, out there that's better than yeah. what he has now. Yeah. Well, not only that, but I mean, you know, most, you know, he, you know, heterosexual artists down through the centuries have, have found inspiration in their desire for women. I yes, mean, that's right. I mean, it's all, almost a cliche in a sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It doesn't necessarily always mean that it translates into, you know, uh, sexual intimacy, but there's always that component of, of right. you know, the uh, animus figure drawing the creative spirit out of the person that, that right. needs to express it, you know. Yeah. And certainly we can see that, you know. In, uh, for example, you know, he took great inspiration from a performance by a great dramatic soprano, Wilhelmine Schroeder-Devriant, when he was, I think, 16, you know, and he was tremendously inspired by what she brought to her performance in its fusion of of music and drama. Yes, so yes. Obviously, he didn't have a relationship with her, but nevertheless, in her 
embodiment of the ideal artistic type as he saw it, he was able to gain a a sense of what he wanted from his own artists over time. I mean, truly, you can see he operates at a very, very Gemini level. He's what he's wanting is the information so he can internalize it and wear it and put it on and see how it feels. It doesn't matter where he gets it from. Whether he gets no. it from a potential partner or whoever it is that he's with, yeah. you know, and yeah. that's the most important thing because his, you know, the whole process of enlightenment for him was very strong, you know, mm-hmm. and, and adding all these components to the music, which made it much richer and more and more intense, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's just interesting to see that. And, um, and, okay, we have to take a really quick break here. I'm going to come back and we're going to talk some more about his um, essential beliefs about life and also how he compiled his music and how his, his, his music kind of changed themes through the life. So anyway, this is the Jupiter Rising show right here on KKNW Alternative Talk Radio. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Be sure to support the sponsors of your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. You know, that's interesting. You know, it's something that I've noticed about Wagner since I first started hearing him. He modulates into the strangest keys. (laughs) He really (laughs) does. He's very chromatic, which is very interesting. Really chromatic, you know. know, We can't say that he invented chromaticism, but certainly with Tristan, he creates a kind of plastic tonality, you know. I mean, Tristan really never cadences, if you can call it a cadence, until the very end of the opera. That's right. In a conventional sense. And and you would expect that, like, in that that was the last piece that we played was the overture to Tannhauser, which is another one of his operas. And, um, He's got a, that ostinato above that did it did it did it did it that, that yeah, that's playing above and the and melodies mm-hmm. and the lower instruments, and yeah. and every time they change into a new chord, they go to a different chord than you're expecting. I'm going, oh boy, that's cool, you know. Yeah, so he he did a lot of that. Venus, Venus opposed Uranus. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are that's the weird destination. You don't know where you're going to end up, type of thing. Yeah. So well, you know, and then listening to that prelude from Tannhäuser, we have a I think a quite a compelling Geminian idea here, which is in Tannhäuser, we have Tannhäuser the knight who is torn between what, at least they would have called it at that time, between sacred and profane love. Right? Oh. In, the young girl oh. Elsa is is in love with him, but he spends, what is it, I think it's 20 years dallying with the goddess of love, Venus herself, on her Venusberg, right? celebrating all the joys of sensual love and all these types of things. And eventually he spurns uh, Venus and returns to the real world and then uh, undergoes really what we call a spiritual transformation. Um, And uh, there's a miracle at the end. So here we see now the, I think, an interesting expression, I think, too, of that uh, Chiron and Pluto and Pisces, this notion of 
of transcending a physical love for spiritual love. Yes, that's right. Which yeah. certainly becomes a more overriding theme as, uh, as so we get into his later essentially you're talking, Parsifal. A, you're talking about leaving the physical behind and the, and the lust and all that kind of stuff for the higher mm-hmm. spiritual. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and the idea of the two women, you know, of the goddess of love herself and Elsa, you know, being the... Uh, I, I think a lot of, of these composers uh, tried to fuse these notions. Uh, certainly Puccini attempted it in Turandot and failed miserably because oh. he died before he could complete it. But okay. I think this idea of, of finding love as a, what we call it, a transformative agency yes, right. you know, uh, that, that right. connects us with the divine is, yeah. is something that I think is also part of the romantic Absolutely. obsession. Scorpio yeah. on the fourth, seventh house. That's, yeah. That says it right there. You know, yeah. to having to merge the soul with with upper and lower, you know, yeah, yeah. L- lower form and then then the higher form, which is the soul's yeah. real, real why we're here. So um, and I can relate to that myself. So, yeah, I, yeah. it makes and, and, t- and for me, Chiron and Pisces always constellates a crisis around faith. Now, I, I know I don't recall. I don't think Wagner was raised in a particularly religious way, but he may have felt, you know, on some level that he was struggling with that, you know, yeah. and trying to find that expression in his own personal life. And so with the Pluto one Pisces, obviously that yeah. which transforms him are, yeah. is the having faith and moving to a, a new place of total unknown, total unpredictability, something he cannot control, and yet he finds absolute oblivion there. You know, yeah. a, a place where he finds um, complete completeness. Yeah. 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 Very complex ideas. <laughs> you know, we and yeah. we see this movement away from you know, Platonic uh, uh, with yeah. the Ring, and then with some of his earlier subjects like Lohengrin. Yeah. Well, even Lohengrin really is about is a Christian allegory. I think. Yes, that's right. And certainly, by the time we get to Parsifal, we have you know, without a doubt offer that is about christianity on some level okay so he was really Arthurian myth in that case he was really wrestling with the metaphysical slash religious slash everything wasn't yeah. he he's yeah. trying to figure out where it all which comes first <laughs> maybe i don't know yeah or yeah. uh or um what how do you put it into a picture so that it makes sense you know so what comes first the chicken or the egg yeah. Okay. Well, again, I think that's the the paradox of the of this tremendous uh, Gemini component yeah. to his is is this par- you know the sense that you can embrace these polarities and yeah. and we see it to a certain extent I think in the T square with Mercury as the focus where we have Mars in the tenth which is sort of admittedly we could say Mars in Aquarius sort of right. a high minded idealism right, right. Um, and then opposing once again that Jupiter you know. Um, with its philosophical perspective. Right, right. You know, and Mercury yeah. in the in the twelve is yeah. is highly yeah. spiritual anyway, obviously. Things from the yeah. other side are reaching out to grab him. But yeah. you know, yeah. but he he can't just go towards having normal faith. He has to add all these other elements to it. You know, yeah. cri- a list of criteria perhaps, you know, yeah. that he needs to make sure that, that it's actually real in the spiritual sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that. See, quite honestly, I was thinking about doing the show today. I had yeah. no idea which way we were going to go with this. <laughs> you know? No, I, I took a lot of notes. And I, I have to be I honest, I, I think I said just, I, 
really wasn't sure I wanted to engage with Wagner for, for all the reasons that we've sort of touched on. Right. Because, so are uh, you glad we did it? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> no, sure. Well, you know, I mean, had had my fate been otherwise, I might, I've certainly studied a great deal of Wagner in my last big audition for an agent in in Germany, uh, you know, someone said, oh, you've got all the potential to sing the big Wagner roles. But when they said, oh, you're Italian, you're an Italian tenor, you'll never get to sing Wagner in Germany. I thought, oh, okay, well, so, much, so much for that idea. Yeah, it requires but anyway. a different set of muscles otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no, they, they really want their heroes to be Teutonic. You know, yes. Uh, yes. E even do. to this day. Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've, studied the particularly Valkyrie a great deal and Lohengrin, you know, and the beautiful vocal writing. But this is the peculiar thing is that Wagner is often sung in a really horrific way by some of its exponents, but he was really very much influenced by Italian vocalism. Um, oh, yeah. Particularly in the early operas. It does take an immense amount of lyricism to do it. Oh, to, yeah, most assuredly. You have to do that. Otherwise, it's just belting out a bunch of notes. You yeah, know. and that's it, unfortunately, it, I think that's what we've heard a lot in, in recent decades. Yeah, the, um, I mean, looking at listening to Kirsten Flagstad is primary example there, you know, yeah. as is just that first first part of the Liebestot is very simple and plain the way she's singing in it, but it's so deep. Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> so yep. she's reaching so many levels with that, that voice. She was practically, wasn't she sort of a mezzo? Mezzo soprano, soprano. No, 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 no. Well, she has a very rich Wagner. lower voice. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. Yep. Kind of maybe both, maybe in some respects. So. Yeah. Yep. It's fabulous. What else can we talk about? Um, yeah. What else? The other thing I think we have to again, just in terms of this man's sheer innovation, we've sort of touched on the fact that virtually every composer that came afterwards, at least for the next few decades, had on some level to come to terms with Wagner, the Italians. Yeah, there were some Italian composers who openly embraced, you know, Wagnerian paradigms. Others right. flirted with them, like Puccini, but realized that they had to give the voice primacy rather than the orchestra. Right. You know, Strauss. Without without Wagner, there's no Strauss. Without Wagner, there's no Hugo Wolf. Which Strauss you know, though? Without... Ricard. Ricard Strauss. I was going to say. Yeah, I say yeah, talk yeah. about Ricard. That's one of his major influences is Wagner. Absolutely. You can tell. You know. And the you know the the sheer innovations in terms of the orchestra, you know that Bayreuth is you know this the center of the epicenter of the Wagnerian world. The theater at Bayreuth has a covered orchestra pit, right? So he knew on an intrinsic level that the gigantic forces that he was massive, yeah, huge. huge operas would have to be mm -hmm. mitigated by acoustic. Yeah, notion. everything bigger and better, including the orchestras. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. orchestra and the instruments, the range of the instruments, the mm -hmm. the, the, the sheer. Uh, palette of the instruments, you know, yeah, unbelievable. And I might Just, even venture to guess, or even say that Gustav Holst was very influenced by Wagner. Oh yeah, no, Holst. <laughs> Holst wrote, I mean, Holst was very. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so obvious when you look at, at you know, the size of his orchestras were huge. You know, yeah. just from the sheer size of that, but also the tonality and 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 the odd rhythms and that kind of stuff, everything. Um, yeah. That was basically, I think, you know, when we're talking about Wagner and his contributions, is him taking himself off the rails of romanticism, you know, yeah. and going off into a completely uncharted waters, which is mm -hmm. a little bit more 20th century. Obviously, he was breaking the rules. And with that Uranus oppose Venus, that's what he would be here to do, you know, yeah. 
to break to break through to um, the the modulation, the way the chords flowed, um, the tra- the um, the cor- chromatic modulations, all of those things, um, which you just don't expect, you know, when you're listening to romantic music. It's just soft and fuzzy and lovely, and then all of a sudden, here comes this huge crashing person. But it's got the romantic feeling behind it, but it's got all the other stuff with it. Yeah. Yeah. Apropos of Pulse, of course, he did have an earlier flirtation with Wagner, and he actually wrote a, a, a full-length Wagnerian opera that he called Sita, which was his other obsessions, which, of course, were Hindu mysticism. Okay. It was a colossal flop, and that was one of the reasons that he, he turned away from that sort of uh, right. yeah. uh, harmonic palette, as, as yeah. it were, and created his own unique style. Yeah. He, even Holst had to come to grips with it. I wonder if anybody's ever played that opera. I wonder if it ever has been Doubt it. <laughs> well, you, I, you might, if you're lucky, maybe you might find a manuscript of it. Somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, it'd be, you know, I, I love his music anyway. And it, with a touch yeah. of Wagner in his opera, I think that wouldn't be too bad. So, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I realize we're talking about somebody that's extremely complicated, you know, and there's yeah. all these different lanes out in front of you that he's taking in life, you know, and, um, the, the interesting thing, too, is something we need to talk about here um, a little bit after the next break, is to talk sure. about his writing, writing, his his verbal writing, not just music his writing. Yeah, his essays. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was very prolific and, and very, um, it had to go somewhere, okay? <laughs> when he's getting frustrated musically, he'd write it down, you know, a type or vice versa type of thing. Well, so, I mean, it's so rare for a composer to write his own libretti. I mean, yeah. Like, that's true. I mean, I'd be hard pressed to, to think of another one at the moment. I know that a few have tinkered with them. Puccini certainly tinkered with a few of his, but, but right, to actually but write his own libretti. And, you know, in the case of the ring, to actually sort of create a, 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 what's the word, a recreation, if you will, of what he perceived to be a more primitive form of the German language. You yeah, know? right. Yeah. I mean, extraordinary. Yeah. Really. And it, it's like his, his life was music was mirrored in the music but also it mirrored back to his what he was thinking about you know yeah. what he how he was putting the thoughts together and how those thoughts would actually apply to his music but he had to express himself verbally you know yeah, well, and, and being a double gemini was a, a praise moon that's he really couldn't help strike it. me as being <laughs> too far-fetched no oh. no yeah. um and, and you look at the size of his head for god's sake yeah oh yeah he had to have a big head to accommodate all that stuff. But, you know, yeah. that, that's just saying, but, you know. And I mean, don't you think it's interesting that the sun is just, just edged its way into Gemini? Yes, before his right. Birth. It's just like, it, like in, you know, he, he had to hang on just a little bit longer so he'd have that yeah. Gemini sun to go along with his Gemini ascendant. That's right. Exactly Very right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean... I, I remember the first time I ever really met a Gemini at an astrology meeting, and he, he stood in front of me, and he started telling me all about his chart. He didn't tell me what it meant, but he yeah, said, yeah. I have this and this and this and this sign and this sign and this sign and this sign. And I said, God, this has to be a Gemini. And he says, yeah, and I'm a Gemini. I says, I knew it. You know? Well, and often information for its own sake. Right? That's right. It, it, it yeah. was impressive, this, the fact that he knew all that information. Yeah. But with my chart with the ninth house Mercury, I go, I just want to say, 
what does that all mean to you? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you want- but he wouldn't be able to tell me, but he'd be able to tell me the list of the stuff. So yeah, you you want the big picture. With that yeah, I do. Picture. I really yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, in some respect, perhaps, um, uh, Wagner may have had that same aspect. It's just com- packing his mind for with so much stuff, you know, and so much information. And every time he he happened upon something new, you know, that he could add to his music or other things, he would really get into it, you know, yeah, and really yeah. dive into it, and then. Then he would change course and go somewhere else and then somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. So. Yeah. And again, that does seem to be a truism of Gemini's, that intense yeah, curiosity. And often, because if, if there isn't anything else to mitigate it, then they, they get intensely curious about something and then they just chuck it away. Yeah. Right. It's like. They uh, start somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Find a different and the danger, I think, from a musical perspective is sometimes the, the sheer profusion of creative thought can produce long stretches of things that aren't particularly meaningful. Oh, Certainly yes. Richard, yes. Richard Strauss was a Gemini, and if he wasn't philosophically invested in something, he could write page after page of stuff. Right, but, right. But it, it lacks that vitality of yeah, authentic Yeah, I, I would meaning. agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, we have to take another really quick break. When we get back, sure. we're going to finish up with Michelangelo and Mr. Richard Wagner. This is the Jupiter Rising Show right here on KKNW Alternative Talk Radio. And this is a live read for Susan Bergstrom of the Medicare Exchange. Susan Bergstrom is a licensed agent in Washington and Oregon, helping people to obtain security in their lives by providing insurance that that pays for final expenses and money for transitioning after a loved one dies. Retirement consists of a lot of moving parts. She will help you with Medicare plans to best suit your needs. Medicare is not only state specific, but it's also county specific. Moving a no, excuse me, having a lot of opportunities, she will help you narrow down your choices to one that's suitable to your health and financial needs. This includes by advantage plans supplements, and prescription drug plans. Seniors can rely on Susan to obtain a financial security through many programs that protect seniors from market downturns and guarantee a competitive rate of return with no downside risks. Susan will also educate you on long-term care. This is an area many people do not plan for in retirement, so early planning can protect your assets and provide dignity in your later years. Susan enjoys working with people and has partnered with a Medicare exchange located in Tacoma and Linwood, Washington. You can talk freely about your situation and you will know that Susan will work to make you comfortable in all decisions that need to be made. You can contact her at 253-318-9379 or by email at sbergstrom at americanseniorbenefits.com. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150KKNW. Okay, that was the prelude to, to Tristan und Sola, one of the most beautiful operas ever written in my view. And it was coming along, I think, to the lines of, toward the end of his life that he wrote this. He wrote this midpoint when he was writing the ring cycle. So he had to take a, a diversion off to one part, probably to, uh, to really look at the, the love part because that was truly 
an emotionally charged opera, truly. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, his his beliefs, his anti-Semitic beliefs, you know, and I think largely came from the fact that anything that was Jewish that was written was not heroic enough for Germans. Isn't that kind of what was the subject? Yeah, I... I, you know, I haven't explored it all that much myself, um, but, uh, you know, he certainly would not have been alone in his thinking at that time. And right. uh, uh, I, I don't know. There's some evidence to suggest that he may like a certain other um, notorious figure who was markedly anti-Semitic, may have had uh, Jewish blood in his own bloodline. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that, you know... Um, yeah, that that may have to some extent informed his thinking, probably on a subliminal level. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I I don't know that I'd be qualified to comment otherwise. Yeah, um, I mean, it's when I was reading about it, I thought, well, why is he this way? And I, because it, it because of the Jewish or no the the German song, the German, um, the boilerplate for that whole whole business of songs. It was like they could not even possibly touch the hem of that, you know. Mm. And um, so it was looked upon that, that he was rather prejudiced against them. And he may have been, I don't know. But um, he is kind of looked upon in in cultures of um, racial and, and prejudice that he's looked at as one of the leaders of that, you know, along with Nietzsche and other people and mm-hmm. Hitler, obviously. Yeah. So it kind of all falls in the same vein. But like I said, I don't want to spend that much time on this. I just think it's interesting, you know, that this kind of created some sort of, whether it created some sort of internal conflict, I don't know. Yeah. But that, yeah. that would be the interesting to see. But yeah. it probably did because he was angry a lot, seemed like. With yeah. that Mars on the Midheaven, yes. Yeah. You know, and he was having trouble making money. And um, he just had, um, you know, I probably had a lot of arguments with a lot of people, (laughs) I would imagine. Yeah. So um, I don't know. It's um, it's amazing how people's personal views and beliefs are colored a lot by what uh, what a person does in a complete sense of the word in their lives. So. um, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you've I don't know if you've experienced this with Aquarius. And, and again, we don't want to devolve into cliche here, but Aquarius, of course, is extremely high minded, you know, extremely. Yes, of course. Yes. But I think it also to us, uh, the flip side of it is maybe this has to do with its traditional rulership by Saturn. I think it's often this intolerance for things that don't come up to that right. lofty right. ideal. That's very and, true. Uh, and that moon now, it's not the most elevated planet chart. It's Mars is, is the most elevated, but it definitely it's there in the 10th. And it, I was just checking out of curiosity of its involvement in midpoint figures, and it's involved with no less than 13 midpoints. So it oh, really... Oh, yeah, the it, moon is? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. my gosh. So from a vocational perspective, I mean, this is both both writing and the theater, you know. And comfort and security. Yeah. Yeah. And, and where was, was that in his life? Not much. Yeah, not not much. And, you know, he suffered from such terrible eczema later oh, in oh, life. Oh, he did. He okay. Had, All he right. Had to That's have the special, Aquarius. 
Yeah. He had to have special uh, silk clothing. He could only wear silk clothing because his skin was just so. so, Of course, that might have had a lot to do, obviously, with eczema, yeah, toxification of his body by other means. But you know, uh, eczema is definitely uh, uh, an outgrowth of Uranus by um, Aquarius. So yeah, but you could definitely see, I think, uh, you know, an Aquarius moon really, yeah, having very little patience. Well, that's that's restlessness too. It's a restless feeling. You yeah. know, and somehow it's inside and it's co- it's packed in there and it's not getting out. It's going to leak yeah. to the outside and it leaks to the skin and there it is. So you see yeah. it, you know. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that makes total sense to me. Yeah. yeah. That poor guy. That's really sad. So anyway. Yeah. How much time have we got? We know. have three minutes. So we guess Ooh, we have okay. to kind of, we have to, we have to bring this to a close. So I have a couple more things to do before we leave. But you know, let's see. How would I sub, sub, how would I describe him? I mean, if you were talking to him right here, like if he was in the studio with me, wow, that'd be wild. But you know, how would I? I would be seeing all sorts of avenues coming off of him. You know, take yeah. an avenue, and we'll explore that. Take another one. We'll take explore that. You know, yeah. and um, and the complexity of him, and the complexity of his thoughts, and the pl- complexity of his music, being a product yeah. of his thoughts. All those things are just makes them extremely interesting to look at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, as I said, this is the this is the uncomfortable thing about genius is that you know <laughs> those of us that are just of you know well, well above average intelligence, let's say, and maybe yeah. with a little little tinge of it, perhaps. Yeah. But when we confront genius, we yeah. we could be dumbstruck, or you know, I, mean, I know. We, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I can't say that I. You don't know what to yeah, say. It's like uh, we were at a we were at an exhibition at, at Sotheby's in, a number of years ago. A friend of Mary Elizabeth's had had a display there, and Salman Rushdie was there. And uh, I mean, I love Salman Rushdie. Oh, he's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Out of Bounds Moon, Salman Rushdie, you know, a brilliant novelist. And, you know, she said, Oh, why don't you go up and introduce yourself? And I thought to myself, What could I possibly say to Salman Rushdie? You know, I mean, I love his books. Oh, Mr. Rushdie, yeah. I love your book. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's, right. uh, yeah. it, well, it's, I, it, when we can't, you know, I've, I've contemplated a few people in, in my own uh, astrological investigations that I would consider geniuses, and they do seem to inhabit yeah, yeah. a different plane of existence. Yeah. And how, how does one talk to them in a normal way? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. anyway, oh, we've got to go. We have one minute left here, and I have to do a couple more things. Michelangelo, thank you so much for being here today. Lots You're of fun, Eileen. Always we, fun. I love it. I love I, it. We'll have you on I think in another. We got to six, a sense of who he is. That's right. Another yeah. six weeks, we'll have you on, and we'll pick another guy. Okay. Absolutely. We have a funds of them, funds of them. So thank you okay. very much for being here with us today. Blessings, my dear. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, okay. we have like 30 seconds left. We have um, on Monday, I've got the um, After Dark at uh, Pizza Casa restaurant, and that's in Lakewood, just off of uh, Thorn Lane, I think, or something like that. Anyway, um, Barrel Full of Monkeys has a brand new thing out. Barrel Full of Monkeys 2 is out, and I'm reading a story on that, among other things, with Mary Beckman and a couple of other people. And also, uh, Jupiter Rising Show is on here every week at 11 o'clock a.m., and you can get a hold of me at jupiterrisingshow.com or eileengrimes.com. Okay, we're done here. It was a great show, as usual, with Michelangelo, and we will see you next week here with Mr. Carl Anderson of Bach Flower Remedies. This is the Jupiter Rising Show right here on KKNW Alternative Talk Radio.